0: we're in John chapter 1. We continue in our study this morning. John has 21 chapters proving to us that Jesus is God. That's what John 20 tells us. That's the purpose of the book, to prove that Jesus is God and that you might believe in him and that by believing in him, you would have life in his name. And he brings a mass of evidence to us in these 21 chapters that his point is true that Jesus is the son of God he is God in human flesh uh, and that we need to repent and put our faith and our trust in him and it's all about evidence to John he's just giving evidence testimony after testimony to these facts to this fact The first evidence last week we saw was the testimony of John the Baptist. Keep in mind, when you see John mentioned in the book of John, it's not talking about the Apostle John. The Apostle John is the human writer. John the Baptist is who John the Apostle is referring to in the book of John. Every time you see John, that's John the Baptist. The Baptist. That's the Old Testament prophet, the last of the Old Testament prophets prophesied in the Old Testament as a forerunner to Christ. The voice crying in the wilderness, the one who would come announcing, the one who would be the advance man to the Messiah. We're talking about John the Baptist who would come baptizing people in the Jordan River, calling the nation of Israel to repentance and prepare their hearts for the messiah we're talking about John the Baptist who gives a testimony in verses 19 through 34 we saw that last week uh, he testified to the fact that Jesus is God that Jesus is the son of God he's the one that said in 136 in John 136 he he said behold the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world those are John the Baptist's words when he saw Christ coming to the Jordan That is not something the Jews would want to hear about their Messiah, that he's a lamb, that he's a sacrifice. They're not looking for a lamb. They're not looking for a sacrifice. They're looking for a military Messiah. They're looking for a Messiah who is a lion, not a lamb. And yet John says, no, this is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And so it's very important that uh, we understand his first coming was all about that, to come as a lamb. One day he will come as a lion, but in his first coming, he comes as the Lamb of God. John the Baptist is mentioned again in these opening chapters, and we will see that more as we go through this gospel Today, we're going to look at a very broad section of Scripture. This is not normal for a Sunday morning for us to do this, but uh, I believe because we're talking narrative here uh, throughout the rest of John 1 and into chapter 2, we're talking about a coherent narrative. I'm going to attempt to take us all the way through the wedding of Cana. We'll see how that goes, Uh, but that is the plan because it's one thought it's one thought, and that's what I want to show us. I want to show us the testimony of, John, of the disciples and the testimony of Jesus, which all fit in with John's purpose in writing the book that he is God calling you to believe in him. So we'll see how it goes. We can always stop, you know, we can always stop. When the bell rings, we can stop. That's not a problem. But we're going to try this and see how it goes. Let me just highlight some titles that are mentioned in this, uh, early, this early section of the book of John uh, about Jesus. It's interesting how many different titles you see. I've already showed you Lamb of God, uh, John's title for him, calling him uh, the Lamb of God in verse 29, again in verse 35. You're going to see that word used again this morning. Uh, in John 1.1, he is called the Word, you recall. The Word of God, the word in the beginning, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word is God. He is a word. He is a sermon of, about God. He is the expression of God. He is one who came to explain God to us. He's the best sermon that ever God ever gave about God. Jesus. He's called the Word in one-one. He's, uh, he's called God himself in one-one. In 123, when John the Baptist is saying, make straight the way of the Lord, Yahweh is used in that term in Isaiah 40. Yahweh, that's the covenant name for God. We're making a path for God. That's what John is saying to the nation. Make a pathway in your heart for God. So it's just all over the place, and he was identifying Jesus as God. Notice in 1-4, he's called the light. Um, In verse 34, he's called the Son of God. And today you're going to see the disciples add some other titles to Jesus. Notice verse 38 of chapter 1, rabbi or teacher. Uh, Verse 41, Messiah or Christ. The Anointed One, verse forty-nine, Son of God, King of Israel, verse fifty-one, the Son of Man. I I just point all these out because you see these titles, you can understand why we make so much about Christ, why we exalt Christ, why John makes so much about Christ in the Gospel of John, because the good news is about Him. He is the target. He is the target. And that's what we sing about here. We want to exalt him. That is what our church is about, exalting him. We don't come here to exalt man. We don't come here to talk about man. We come here to exalt Christ and make much of Christ. And those titles are just other ways of talking about him and ascribing to him truths, of his majesty and his glory and his attributes and all of those things. That's why we make such a big deal about Jesus. Title after title, there's no one like him. There is no greater name in the universe than Jesus Christ. In verses 19 through 34, we covered that last week, testimony of John the Baptist. John the Baptist said, hey, I'm a road sign. I'm just a road sign to point you to Jesus. I'm not the target. I'm a road sign pointing you to Jesus. What, well, folks, our challenge at Grace Church is to be a road sign, to point people to Christ. We're not pointing people to our church. We're pointing people to Christ. That is where people need to run to, where people need to find salvation in Christ. John the Baptist was pointing the religious leaders to Christ. He was pointing the nations to Christ. The pattern is going to continue today. The disciples are going to be pointing each other to Christ because that's what we're to be about. Andrew is going to point Peter to Christ. Andrew is going to, and Peter are going to point Philip to Christ. Philip is going to point Nathaniel to Christ. You're going to see that in our verses this morning. Jesus points all of them to himself in the miracle in Cana, at the wedding in Cana. And this is normal. This is normal because this is what Christians do. We recruit others to believe and trust in Christ that is what we are to be about. We need to put aside this thinking that says, I don't want to impose my views on other people. That is not Christian thinking. If we would made up if this was a made up message, I get it. It's just our opinion. But this is God's words for salvation. It is the only way to escape the wrath of God. That's what salvation means. There is salvation in no other name but Jesus. It's too urgent for me to worry about if I'm imposing something on somebody else. They can just say no and they can reject it, but I need to get that out of my thinking. It's in my thinking at times and it's in your thinking at times. We are about recruiting others into the kingdom of God. We are about being a road sign. We are about making much of Christ and pointing men to him. And we want to make him look attractive in our own lives. We want to do it with humility. We don't want to be obnoxious. But we must understand that that is our calling. It's advancing the kingdom one person at a time. That's how the kingdom is advanced. Silence is not golden. Speaking up is golden. Speaking up is what's golden. And it's not just talking about our church. It's not just talking about the benefits of being a Christian. It's talking about knowing him, repenting, and following him, and believing in him. We need to lay the gospel out in front of people. And I pray that. You know, as I've been going through this, and I've been just really thinking about our church, I'm thinking, God, I really desire we have more converts as a result of the ministries of our church. You pray that with us as elders. God, may we have more converts more people, more people coming to Christ through the ministries and ministry of our church, that we would be a road sign to pointing people to him. And so, repeated and repeated over and over again, you're going to see that today so people can share in the forgiveness. Because people can't have faith by hearing. Faith comes by hearing, Hearing by the word of God. How will they hear without a preacher? They need somebody to tell them. Let's be the somebody who tells them. We're coming to chapter 1. I'm going to introduce you to some disciples. This passage has caused some problems for some. Uh, They say this passage is a contradiction to the synoptic gospels. This passage is is a contradiction to what Matthew, Mark, and Luke say regarding the calling of the disciples. Some people have said we have a contradiction here. I want to just make this point about John 1 and the calling of these disciples in John 1 and the calling that Jesus does by the Sea of Galilee. Peter, James, John, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And they followed him. Listen, that calling in Matthew was a calling to ministry. That's different. This is a first encounter right here. This is, as you see in verse uh, 39, a come and see event. Look at verse 39, come and see, and you will see. You see it down in verse 46, come and see. This is a first encounter with Jesus. This is most likely their salvation passage, because you see in verse 11 of Matthew, of John 2, they believed in him. These are John's disciples. John's pointing them away from John and pointing them to Christ. This is their first encounter with this Lamb of God, this one that John has been telling them about for months. And so this is their first time seeing him. So later, later, we will have Matthew 4. We will have the calling by the sea into ministry. Later, we will have the appointing of them as apostles. Those are later events to this. Understand, this is the first encounter with Christ. Very important to understand that or you can get confused. I want you to keep in mind these guys are nobodies. These guys are not educated, highly educated guys. These guys are not, uh, have any position in, in society whatsoever. And that's what God does. He calls men, calls women who are, the most, who are humble who are not, it's not that he never calls wealthy people, he does, but in, in this sense, it's, he's saying, it's not the mighty men, as Paul says in Corinthians. It's not the wealthy men. It's not the ones you would think if you're gonna build a kingdom that you would call these kinds of people. He calls fishermen. He calls people who are poor and, and he calls them to make his kingdom. Well, let's get started or we'll never get. we'll never get there. Let's get going. Look at verse 35 of John chapter 1. Again, the next day, John was standing. Who are we talking about? John the Baptist. John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples. So we start with John the Baptist. Uh, John the Baptist is now, he's been talking to the nation. He must, he must um, increase, I must decrease. Uh, And he's redirecting devotion of his key disciples to Christ. Uh, We're talking about day three, if you follow the order, from uh, verse 19, uh, uh, verse 29. And now we're on day three of this first week in the ministry of Christ. It's really interesting that that information is provided for us. You have a sequence going on here. The next day, third day of the first week of the ministry of Christ. Notice there are two of them, and at this point, We don't know their names. Verse 36, and he looked at Jesus as he walked. John the Baptist intensely intensely looks at Jesus as he's walking by and says once again that statement, behold the Lamb of God. There you have it, men, God wrapped in human flesh, walking around. That's the Lamb of God. That's God's chosen Lamb, the one who will be, though he doesn't say it here, will be a sacrifice one day. what I've been telling you about. Verse 37, the two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. And like I said, this is the first calling, but they followed Jesus. Uh, This most likely, as I said before, is their salvation calling. We'll see as we go through this. They leave John and they follow him. They want to learn some things from this man that they've heard so much about. Verse 38, Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, hey, first words spoken by Jesus in the book of John right here. What do you seek? Uh, What's on your mind? As he turns to talk to these two disciples of John who are following him. They said to him, Rabbi, Which means teacher, if you're a Greek reader, to his Greek audience, teacher, where are you staying? They call him rabbi, they call him teacher, and basically we want to spend time with you. We want to learn from you. Verse 39, he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. They go with Jesus, about the tenth hour. The day would start at sunrise 6 a.m, say, we're talking 4 p.m. in the afternoon. So they followed Jesus. They go to where he stayed. Verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him, now we've got a name. Now we've got a name of one of the two mentioned in verse 35. One of those was a man named Andrew. Andrew is um, Simon Peter's brother. Andrew is uh, one of the disciples that we will see later. He will be appointed as one of the disciples. Um, Andrew is called the, son, the brother of Simon Peter. Interesting, though he is the one that goes and gets Peter, he is always known as Simon Peter's brother. And the big thing, reason for that is by the time the book of John was written, Peter was more prominent than Andrew. That would be that reason. Peter was very prominent as one of the disciples of Christ. He's less known, Andrew, like I said, Andrew's less known, but uh, I, would, I would also say that John is present here. John, the apostle. You remember John never mentions his name in this book anywhere? But it seems that because of the eyewitness account of these events, the other disciple who were not told, go back to verse, remember I told you there were two of them, two of them who were standing with, with John the Baptist. The other disciple, the other individual with Andrew who went to get Peter is most likely John the Apostle, excuse me, yes, John the Apostle. So John the Baptist has recruited two disciples for Jesus right here, and they have gone now and recruited somebody else. That's what, the, that's what it's about, right? Recruiting others, recruiting others. Verse 41, he found first his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which translated means, if you're one of his Greek readers, Christ, the anointed one. It seems like we're into the next day here. It started at 4 p.m. earlier. We may be into the next day here, though it doesn't say that. And if he had to travel back to his hometown to see Peter, then it's definitely the next day. But he tells his brother Peter, we have found the Christ, the Messiah. Great commission already in progress. Good place to start with the great commission is your own family. He wants his brother to come to Christ. Verse 42, he brought him to Jesus. He brings Peter to Jesus. Jesus looked at Peter and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which translated means Peter. Cephas, Aramaic. Peter is the Greek. You shall be called Peter. It means rock. That's what you're going to become. You're going to become a rock. You may not feel like one right now, but you're going to become a rock. This, this is authority here. When you can change somebody's name, wouldn't you say? This is authority. Changing his name. I'm going to change your name. I have this rightful authority over you. You are going to be a rock. Signifying the role that he is eventually going to play. We're going to see more of that as we go through the book of John. But that's what he Did here in this scene. You are going to be called Peter. You see this with Abraham, right? He was called Abram. The name signifies some future role, father of a great nation, Abraham. Mm. So, Andrew and the other disciple, who I believe is John, reach Peter. Verse 43 The next day, he purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, Follow me. Confusing verse, okay? This is a confusing verse. English versions don't really help us with this. I know he is capitalized in both places. But it seems to me that the he could be Andrew. If you follow the text, Andrew goes into Galilee and finds Philip. That's a possibility, And those who promote that possibility say the reason is because Jesus' name comes up in the second sentence. I say we just compromise. Let's say the first he is Jesus and the second he is Andrew. So it would be Jesus who purposes to go into Galilee because he's in charge. He's determining where they're going to go. And he, Andrew, finds Philip. That seems to work best. And obviously the interpreters of the ESV and the New American Standard did not see it that way. But most commentators would tell you that is a difficult verse to understand who those pronouns are referring to. I would say the first he is Jesus purposes to go into Galilee. And there is where Andrew finds Philip. Because Andrew is the subject of what's been going on prior to this. And Jesus says to Philip, follow me. See, another reason for Andrew here is because everybody so far has been brought by somebody. And so to me, it would make sense that Andrew once again finds somebody and brings them to Jesus. And Peter, by this point, is with him as well, and so is John. So we learn something about Philip here. Philip was from Bethsaida of the city of Andrew and Peter. Andrew and Peter are from this town. They're also from Capernaum, we learn later. They must have moved there eventually. But this, or this may just be their birth city. But Philip was from the same town. Hey, you got a group of friends. You got a group of friends here. Friends and family. Jesus chooses a group of friends and family to be the first People that know each other. What a great place to start in the Great Commission. What a great place to start in being a road sign to somebody else with your own family and your friends. They're from the city of Bethsaida, which means house of fish or fishermen. Then verse 45, Philip found Nathaniel. All right, still, here we go again. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. That's just a normal way, by the way, to identify somebody in their culture, a male in their culture. What town they're from and who their dad is. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Joseph. So Philip has the same evangelistic f- uh, fervor. Uh, I found the Messiah. I want somebody else to find him too. I want my friend Nathaniel to find him too. And so he goes to Nathaniel and, and seeks to recruit him. People you care about. It goes to him. You just you, things well up in your heart, and you just want to tell somebody. <laughs> things well up in your heart, and you just want to tell somebody, and so they can come and drink the same living water that you drank. So, um, it's interesting. Moses and the law, and also the prophets wrote. Uh, that's how they know. That's where their hope was. Old Testament prophets and the law. Their hope for a Messiah was based on what they knew from the scriptures this was not just some invented thing this was from god's word god had promised the messiah god had promised one who would come and be the true deliverer the one who would come and be the messiah nathaniel says to him to philip can anything good come out of nazareth that's interesting can anything good come out of nazareth Naz, uh, immediately, Nathaniel is not so sure uh, Naz, for some reason, either Nazareth did not have a, a good reputation in the minds of people or, or maybe they had a rivalry between the two towns. He was from Cana, by the way. Nathaniel's from Cana. We're told that in John 21. and they're only nine miles apart. So maybe some kind of, maybe they had a athletic teams, you know, how that is. Maybe they had that kind of rivalry. Can anything good come out of Gainesville? you you said that before. (laughs) Things like that. You know, same idea. Philip says, come and see. You know, it's almost the the same idea, the same idea uh, of um, thinking, just be cautious because, you know, wait, I thought he was going to be from Bethlehem. Doesn't Micah say he's coming from Bethlehem? What, what are you telling me uh, Nazareth for? So just cautious. Just being cautious. So you can understand skepticism. This all, by the way, Nathaniel is another name for Bartholomew. Uh, many believe that this is Bartholomew. Bartholomew means son of Tholomew. Bar, son of Tholomew. Uh, and when you find a list of disciples, you see Bartholomew listed. They, many believe Nathanael is the same person. So he's skeptical. Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said, Notice, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. It doesn't take long for things to change. Jesus disarms everything with a great compliment. You are a truth-seeking Israelite. That's what he means. You are a true Jew, not just on the outside, but on the inside as well. It doesn't mean you're perfect, but you're sincere. So Nathaniel says to him in verse 48, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Jesus demonstrates his omniscience, that he's all-knowing. I knew you before right now. I knew you when I saw you under that fig tree, those fig trees that would have their long branches that would just form a canopy and you could sit under the shade of a, of a fig tree and you could meditate, you could take a nap. You know, The breeze would blow through the branches of a fig tree. Fig trees were common for that. I saw you sitting under that fig tree. Maybe you were meditating. You were under the fig tree. I saw you then. Nathaniel says, wow. Answers him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. So skepticism evaporates. There's enthusiasm. Teacher, you're the son of God, the God-appointed ruler, king of Israel. By the way, kings were called sons of God. That could be possibly what he has in mind there. But he's saying you are a son in David's line, king of Israel. You see, these disciples are affirming what John, the Apostle's John purpose is in writing the book. The, Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah. They are giving testimony to that, just like John the Baptist did at the beginning, in, in the last section of John 1. In this section, these guys are doing the same thing, giving testimony, their own words, Jesus answered him and said, because I said, these things, said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? Listen, you're going to see greater things than these. You're going to see greater things than these. If that's all it takes for you to get this excited, wait till you see what's going to happen. In fact, chapter 2 is going to be the start of it all. You're going to see greater things. Verse 51, and he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Very interesting, very interesting. Some have tried to line this up with, uh, and it may be true, but Genesis 28, when Jacob's Jacob's ladder, Jacob's stairway case, when the angels descending and ascending, and some have said it, it ties in with that somewhat, very possible, but I think basically all Jesus is saying, you are going to see power associated with the Son of Man. That's what you're going to see in the days ahead. You're going to see God's power demonstrated in the ministry of the Son of Man. In in, in the scene with Jacob's stairway to heaven, it was basically just an affirmation that God's going to care for his people through through the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants. But here, it's possible that he's saying that just like in that scene, I'm the way to heaven. I'm the connection between her, heaven and earth. That's possible. Some commentators think that's what's going on here, that I am the way, I am the road to heaven, and that makes total sense. But no doubt about it, it's, you're going to see incredible power, incredible power in my ministry uh, unleashed In my ministry as well. I think that's pretty important. Turn to Daniel 7 just for a moment. I think we've got time to look at this before we go to the wedding. Daniel 7, he uses that term, son of man. That is a term that nobody else gives to Jesus, that is a term that Jesus gives to Jesus, son of man. In Daniel chapter 7, and that's a term that comes out of the Old Testament. It's a a messianic term from Daniel chapter 7. I just want to remind you where it comes from. Some of you are very familiar with this, but he's he's going to look like a man. He's going to look like a man. He's going to talk like a man, but he's more than a man. He's more than a man. Notice in Daniel 7, 13. Daniel having this vision, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. He came up to the Ancient of Days, that's the throne of God, and was presented before him. Looks human, there's something more about him though. Describing the incarnation, this one son of man comes up to God The Ancient of Days, and notice verse 14, he's given dominion. And to him, the Son of Man was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed." So, Son of Man is taking His disciples, this band of disciples that He has pulled together here and telling them and telling them that you remember that heavenly coronation scene in Daniel 7? You remember that scene of the Son of Man in the presence of God? This is, this is Him, me, focusing on His humanity Son of man is a focusing on his humanity. This is a name Jesus gives himself. He was born of a woman, but he is God incarnate. He looks like a man, talks like a man, but it's more than a man. He's a son of man. It's a title he gives to himself. And it's interesting. It's a title that does not carry a lot of baggage. All the other titles had implications to them that they can misconstrue. This one they could not. Messiah, military Messiah. We want a military Messiah. We want a Messiah that's going to get rid of Romans. A rabbi. We've got lots of rabbis. King of Israel. We've had kings, but we want a powerful king. A king more powerful than the king we have, than any king we've ever had. So I'm saying son of man just brings it God became a man. Incarnation language. So that's what he's saying here at the end of chapter 1. Deity and sovereignty and authority. Just that powerful connection to Daniel 7. So chapter 1, intense recruiting has just gone on. And now with disciples, recruiting disciples, I am the son of man, uh, and just a reminder to us, go, go to friends, go to family. Start there. Go to coworkers, go to classmates, go to, just a reminder. That's what we're about, recruiting others into the kingdom of God. That's our application for this. Don't miss that. Go share the gospel with enthusiasm, just like you see these men. So chapter, now chapter two, and we can do this. We can do this, just hang on. Chapter two, the scene changes, but we've got the same group of people, and they're gonna to head to Cana of Galilee. They're gonna walk nine miles north of Nazareth to this town called Cana. And they're gonna to go to a wedding. And the purpose of this you see in verse eleven, this beginning, this is two eleven. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, notice, and his disciples believed in him. This is the testimony of Jesus that I am who I say I am Son of Man, Messiah, King of Israel, all those other titles, God in human flesh, all that other stuff you've heard about me. This is my testimony that those claims are true. In fact, you could say that from chapter 2, verse 1, all the way to most likely through verse, chapter 16. Some stop at 12, but that would be the book of the signs. Book of the signs where Jesus reveals his glory. That's John one two one through John 12 something, into chapter 12. That's Jesus uh, revealing his glory. And you go to the end of the book of John, and that's Jesus receiving glory but it's all about glory being shown and manifested in Christ. It's going to say the disciples believe. That's why I think this is probably their salvation. Verse 11, they believed in him, the transforming power of these disciples who've been recruited. And I'm, I'm like, I think you could add James. You could add John and Nathaniel and Peter and uh, Andrew. We've got at least six disciples here. There may be others, we don't know. All right. Let's look at verse one. On the third day, third day, we're talking about three three days after the fourth day. We're talking about the first week of the ministry of Christ. Was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Got this running sequence going. We're into that. We're still in this first week of progression. Um, at a wedding, in this town of Cana, the mother of Jesus was there. And I want to tell you something. She must be in charge of catering, okay? She must be in charge of catering for this wedding because she is the one that brings about the problem, brings up the problem, and she is the one who tells the others what to do about the problem, okay? That's your caterer. If you've ever been to a wedding, that's what a caterer does. She reports the problem, tells others what to do with it. Verse 2. And Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Remember I told you Nathaniel was from Cana? Most likely the reason they all were invited was because some close association with Nathaniel in this town. I don't know if that's true or not. But the towns weren't that far apart. So people knew people in other places. So very possible. But all the disciples are invited and Jesus is invited. And I think it's important to point out that Jesus enjoyed festive occasions. Understand that. He was not an ascetic. He did not disapprove of weddings and marriage. He was not against marriage. He was always in favor of marriage between a man and a woman. Understand that. Legal weddings. He's not against marriage. Verse 3, something terrible happens. The wine ran out. And the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. That may not sound like a big deal to you and I. Oh, he ran out of wine? No, carry on, you know. But it was a very serious thing in this shame culture. Very serious thing for the groom family to be labeled as not providing enough wine for the festive. That would have been a stain on the couple's marriage from the very start. That sounds silly to us in some ways, but in this culture, very serious. A very serious thing. Uh, there is even one incident, I read this in Carson's commentary, one incident is where the bride's family could sue the groom's family. Can you imagine? What a way to start your wedding. I just don't, just, I, can't even, I can't even fathom this. But the point is, you know, it, it, it was a humiliating experience for this to happen. I, I, I get it. We can't get that totally, but let's don't, let's don't worry about that. That's not the point. And another thing that's not the point is the, the wine. The wine is a mixed drink. Understand that. It's mixed with a lot of water. Understand that. Also in Carson's commentary, one-third to one-tenth of its fermented strength. Okay, we're not talking about something very strong. We're talking about something that is less strong than beer. Okay, we're not talking about something strong like today's wine is much stronger. This wine was not like that. None of that is the point, though. None of that is the point. We can talk about that another day uh, all the things about that. But that's not the point here. I don't want to get distracted with that. It would be very difficult. It would take time to get intoxicated with this wine is what I'm trying to say. Uh, and I would say this, undiluted wine uh, was, was considered, was what you call strong drink in the Bible. And it was something that their culture viewed only a barbarian would drink undiluted wine, which is Interesting. And so the issue here is the miracle that is about to take place. There is a wave of panic over this. It's kind of a private thing. Mary hears about it, and she's kind of private. This is not a semi, this is is not a public miracle. Jesus is starting small here. He's starting with just a few people who know about this, and primarily it's for his disciples, not for everybody at the wedding. So we have a semi-public event here. We have a private miracle taking place here. Nonetheless, it is one of the signs. That's what a miracle is. A sign that points to him and his claims. And Mary comes up to Jesus. um, And people have speculated, why did she tell Jesus this? And this is what F.F. Bruce says in his commentary. I think this is pretty good. Perhaps she had learned by experience to draw attention to a need. Uh, By experience that to draw attention to a need was a sure way of drawing his attention to a need was a sure way of getting something done. Understand, Joseph is dead. Joseph has probably died by now. You hear nothing about Joseph. He has been her caretaker. He has been the man in her life. He has watched after her. He's just now coming out of obscurity. She's not asking him to do a miracle, folks. He has never done miracles. His birth was the last one. This is verse 11. The first sign. The first miracle. I don't care what the legends say. Oh, he... he, uh, Made two clay pitch. I don't know. You've heard the legends about Jesus raising people from the dead It was a child. Those are legends. Those are not true. First miracle right here. So she's not asking for a miracle. She's only asking for leadership, if anything. And like I said, that's Bruce's point I think is, is very good. Joseph has since died. So here's what Jesus says to her in verse 4. Woman, what does that have to do with us? That sounds really cold. (laughs) It sounds, in the English, it sounds very offensive. It just, what does that have to do with us? Doesn't sound like much respect. Doesn't sound like much affection. Um, However, the word woman is used again by Jesus at the cross. Woman, behold your son to John. He's going to take care of you. So it The woman part is not the problem. You might think it sounds that way, but that's not the problem. Um, What does that have to do with us might be somewhat of a mild rebuke, and it's tied into the word hour. See that word hour? My hour has not yet come. In other words, at this point, we are at a beginning point for the ministry of Christ, my hour has not yet come. I'm in now. My relationship to you is changing. I am now beginning my public ministry. My hour will come down the road of my my crucifixion. My hour, my time now, my relationship with you is changing in terms of me being under you or me listening to or doing better ways to say this, Rod. What are they? Uh, uh, my relationship in terms of wh- how I relate to you is going to be different. Uh, I, don't, I don't submit to men at this point. That is something that I will eventually do at my hour. Why are you looking at me like that? Does not that make sense? Do uh, you get the idea of what I'm trying to say? This is somewhat of a mild rebuke. But I think at the point we're here is it's changing, the ministry, it's, his focus is changing and his relationship with his mother is changing. And so what does that have to do with us? Uh, these are temporal things. These are things that really don't fit into my ministry. Possibly, I'm just, hey, you can read volumes on this question here, okay? Okay. But I think what, what you see next happening, um, you know, he's saying the reason why I have come is changed, it's all different now. I'm no longer living in your house. I'm no longer uh, in obscurity. I'm now in public to fulfill the reason I have come. Verse five, his mother said to his servants, whatever he says, you do it. This is sort of uh Uh, her recognizing that, yeah, there's been a mild rebuke, but she also trusts him, and whatever he says will be right. And I think even this expression of faith on her part brings about the response of Jesus to do something about it. I think that's possible. Whatever he says, do it, because she trusts him to do the right thing, to save the reputation of this couple and to demonstrate power to his disciples, though she doesn't know that's what it's about. But he'll do something to, to save the reputation of these people. I just trust him to do that. Okay, then you get into this. There were six, verse six, there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, fill the water pot, pot, uh, pots with water. Uh, So they filled them up to the brim. You're talking 500 liters of water, 500 liters of wine. That is a lot of wine. That is an incredible wedding gift to this couple because they're going to have a lot of leftover wine. And they can sell it, but it's a wonderful wedding gift to them because that is a lot of wine. These... These... these, uh, Containers, these water, stone water pots. Fill them to the brim so it can be verified that nothing else was added. Verse eight, and he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him when the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine and did not know where it had come from. The servants knew The head waiter cannot understand. He calls the bridegroom over, the one whose family is responsible for the wedding, and says to him, every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. Best wine is coming out at the end. The well-known practice is, at the beginning you provide your guests with the good wine, and as the party gets going, they don't care how it tastes. And not quality doesn't matter anymore. So grape, grape vines turned water into wine all the time, right? But nobody knows how it works. It takes months for that to happen. Jesus does it here in an instant. Uh, he knows how it works. He did it. He puts his transforming power on display and Andrew and Peter and Philip and Nathaniel and John and possibly James all saw it and that was the point. The, the bridegroom and the bride were incidental to this story. It doesn't matter what they knew or said or what, how they were affected by it one bit. The issue was these disciples that they were confirmed in what they had already Verbally expressed as to who Jesus was. That's the point. Verse 11: The beginning of his signs Jesus did in Canaan of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This was the beginning of his signs. This was the first miracle. And that's what he calls miracles throughout the book of John, by the way, are signs pointing to something pointing to Christ is all fulfilling John's purpose for writing the whole book Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. This is John twenty thirty. But these have been written. The ones that I selected, the seven that John selects to write about in the book of John, have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. I think that did it, didn't it? That would certainly go, Wow. Wow. More than just a confession now, it's we've seen it. He truly is who he claimed to be. Father, thank you for this time this morning. Thank you for our time in your word. Thank you, God, for truth that we can just look at together and be encouraged by and built up in our faith. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name, amen.